0: Welcome to Book Wondering. Slightly different intro today, as Anna is poorly with COVID and has a rather gravelly voice on the go, so this is producer Adam to introduce you to this week's episode, the last before a small break. Anna is the author of Pages & Co and an arts journalist, and Book Wondering is the podcast where she talks to another writer about their most beloved children's or YA book. This episode, she's chatting with beloved American author Kate D. Camillo. Kate is one of only a few authors who have won the Newbery Medal twice for The Tale of Despero and Flora and Ulysses, and her most recent book is the immediate New York Times bestseller, The Puppets of Spellhorst. Kate's choice was Mary Norton's 1952 children's classic, The Borrowers. We talked about The Borrowers' decorating habits, stories within stories, and how Kate comes to truly understand her own books through conversations with her readers. You can find the books discussed today on Anna's A Case for Books page at bookshop.org, which supports the podcast and independent bookshops. If you use the code Bookwanderer, you'll get free shipping on the books featured on this series, including The Puppets of Spellhorst and The Borrowers. And finally, before we get into the episode, just to quickly note that while the podcast is largely suitable for children, this isn't geared at younger listeners. Enjoy. (music)
1: welcome Kate thank you so much for coming and being part of book Wonders. it's lovely to see you thank you so much I'm so so excited to be here and um as I said to you when we started
2: Ramona the dog is also excited (laughs) to be here and hopefully she won't express her
1: excitement so I I think no I don't think anyone will mind a little bit of uh, Ramona's (laughs) excitement yeah (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um so I guess to start with could you tell us which book you chose and why um I chose The
2: Borrowers because it's a book that uh, I read uh as a kid um and that I keep on coming back to the whole, Mary Norton is the author I keep on coming back to the series um as an adult um for a multiplicity of reasons not the least of which is just pure pleasure And uh, another is to try and figure out how Mary Norton worked that magic. Um, And the third is to remind me of um, what I think of as peripheral magic, which the borrowers kind of um, awakened in me when I was a kid, that notion that if you turn your head slowly enough, you will catch something truly extraordinary going on. Um, and to me, that is so
1: relevant to telling stories for kids. Mm. Mm. I love that. There's every single thing you said I want to get into more. But Oh, great.
2: Go Good. And did you read The Borrowers When You Were a Kid? Is- yes.
1: But okay. I hadn't, re- so I've just reread it, obviously, for our conversation. But I, it isn't one I've gone back to before as an adult. So it was really fun revisiting it. Um, I am going to ask you about the sequels because one of my real memories of The Borrowers is reading this one a few times and starting the sequel several times and never never getting through it. So I don't know if I'm just like a homily and I like the domesticity and I don't want to leave, but I... I can really remember trying to read the second one That's multiple times and never being able to maintain it. The,
2: the it, it, For me as a kid, uh, I don't remember having um, to push past anything to do the sequels. Although I say as an adult, I like the first one best. Okay.
1: Um, yeah, so... So when was it? Can you remember how old you are roughly that you first encountered it? And was it a book that you were given or you stumbled across in a library?
2: Um, I was probably eight or nine and uh, I checked it out of the library and um, I, you know, just kind of went down the rabbit hole with it. It was like, it was, it's the same way I felt about uh, Paddington Um, Ah. and my mom uh, I re- remember got me Paddington uh, for Christmas. or I have a very, you know, like a flashbulb memory of unwrapping it underneath the tree on Christmas morning. But the way I felt about Paddington was the same way I felt about the borrowers, as if it had been written for me. Um, and, and also with Paddington, um, I remember being so grateful to my mom for knowing who I was and getting me the right. Uh, book but with the borrowers I just as you say stumbled across it on my own in the library
1: that serendipity of libraries is incredible isn't it the magic of when I think about how many books I just stumbled across as a child just because I was making my way through the pretty small library I had access to and books that turned out to be favorites that you know on another path might never have stumbled across can you name some of those? So uh, I discovered Eva Ibbotson through mm. my local library. I discovered Diana Wynne-Jones through my local oh. library, who is my all-time favorite writer. Um, and also, honestly, a load of books that had a huge impact just for pure pleasure in terms of my relationship with reading. There was a series called Scrambled Legs. I don't know if you've... I've. It's one of those series that never I've heard no, of. It. I have no concept, really, of how famous it is. I've never really come across it before, but it was a an American series about a group of girls uh, who used to, go, who go to a Saturday morning ballet class, but they're the misfits of the, they called the other girls the bunheads and they <laughs> they become friends because they're all very different from each other, but they, n- none of them want to be there. And it's a huge, it's one of those kind of like Sweet Valley High, there's like loads and loads and loads of them. Um, and they just will happen to be in my local <laughs> Northern England Library and I also learned so much about American culture from right.
2: (laughs) I would imagine. Yep. Yeah. No. And it's it is you know just you talking about that um, the stumbling um, part is it's so that that's like one of the pure pleasures. There's no greater gift that for me than somebody putting a book in my hands. At the same time, that freedom to just wander and go from this to that and and I always say that when I was a kid um if it was a book it met my requirements I mean I I I read without discretion (laughs) everything was wonderful to me um and there were very few things that um I didn't that I did by virtue of it being a book I loved
1: it you know I think it's actually part of the reason that the second borrower's book really sticks in my head because that was quite an unusual experience for me as a child. I, I can't even remember anything about it other than I can remember starting it more than once and not finishing it. Wow. But that was unusual. And I probably would like it if I went back to and I really did like the borrowers. So I'm not sure. I was sexual. gonna say, so
2: what did you think of it as an adult now coming back to it?
1: I so enjoyed it. I had completely it's interesting to talk about like stories and all of that is I had completely forgotten that it had that framing device. I had so if people haven't Come back to it in a while, or haven't read it. Oh, I
2: forgot that yeah. too, yeah it's yeah. Inter-
1: so oh also I should say we can spoil anything we want with the borrowers uh i'm, I'm uh we're we can talk about anything um, oh great, yes, Good. if people haven't read it in a while or haven't read it, it isn't it's not straight into the story. it is Aunt May telling her niece about the fact that her brother, this story that happened to her brother or did it, and I totally had totally would not have told you that that's how the borrowers started it's also so interesting because the very beginning of the book it's it, I'm going to read it to, to refresh your memory and for everyone who's listening um Says, it was Mrs. May who told me, oh, not Aunt May, Mrs. May, who first told me about them. No, not me. How could it have been me, a, wi- a wild, untidy, self-willed little girl who stared with angry eyes and was said to crunch her teeth? Kate, she should have been called. Yes, that was it, Kate. Not that the name matters much either way. She barely comes into the story, which is yeah. <laughs> such a... Right.
2: and I almost wonder, I don't know what you were reading from, but uh, what I read from is... Uh, you know a special edition 50th anniversary edition mm-hmm. i so don't remember that that i wonder if it would had actually been knocked out um Ooh. i think that at least in the in the states that that framing device might have been taken out
1: entirely. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. That's a wormhole. Yeah. I will also be going down after yeah. we finish to try and work it out because it also gives it such a. It's it's the framing device is interesting and also at the end it introduces this idea of, it was was it or wasn't it real? Maybe it was all her brother making it up, but also such a spiky beginning with that. I I'm know. An, yeah, <laughs>
2: a spiky beginning and and um for somebody who. I mean, part of what strikes me with this book is, uh, each time I pick it up, is how well-written it is. It is really well-written. Back to the spikiness, that introduction is a little spiky in language. You have to kind of, like, unpack it. Um, it is not, it doesn't flow. And and it, um, I don't know if it's necessary, that framing device, you know? <laughs> Oh,
1: that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. Because, I so on the whole, I would say as a reader, I'm someone who loves a framing device. Uh, the book I'm working on next has one. Um, and I, I was interested in what you thought because I feel like a lot of your books not necessarily have framing devices, but they are your, your I hope it's fair to say, a writer who enjoys playing with ideas of kind of story and being consciously a story as opposed to those kind of some books are it's almost like you're reading a record of a true thing happening and some yeah. things are very much I am telling you a tale and I feel like your books often quite you do kind of utilize those sorts of playful that's story true. structures that's
2: true yeah yeah no and I I like you love a frame and and I um I get really I I I, I love you know a story within a story within mm-hmm. a story is just like endlessly fascinating to me as a writer a reader and as a kid it's it's got that quality of enchantment to it so it's interesting that i kind of like wonder could you do this without it and did i encounter it without it i'm
1: interested in why you feel like it isn't necessary or maybe potentially it isn't it would work it would work differently very differently Without it, let's
2: let's just look, you (laughs) know, um, at that opening
1: because it's the combo of the opening and then the closing. Because I must admit, coming back to it as an adult, I found that last line of it, "Well, Arietti's handwriting is just like my brother's," quite unsettling to read, as a sort of uh, is it's in children's fiction it feels like especially at the moment we don't do the kind of <laughs> pull the rug under at the last minute and be like right, it it's all made up right I know it's interesting right <laughs> but then it also has the bit where she she leaves the pillowcase and the stuff is gone like it's it's very clever and unsettling in a way that I, I really couldn't work out how I felt about it it's clever and unsettling
2: and it goes back uh the more we talk about it to that 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 notion you know that one of the reasons that i keep coming back to the, these books that peripheral magic that i mean that's what that's what the framing device gives you right did i see it did i not see it did it happen did it not happen you know um so it's just it's i it's it's fascinating to consider and i don't know i, I don't know if you're this way but for me there are times uh when the framing device is a way for me to it's my doorway in. And then I can see afterwards, it's kind of like scaffolding. I can like take it away and I don't need it. It's um and it it takes a while to see that. Um but and it's not always true. Sometimes it's absolutely necessary. So
1: I still I'm unsure because I'm in the process of writing and I, I've not used a framing device myself quite like this. So I don't know yet whether it is gonna prove to be scaffolding uh or not. Uh, well
2: and and you know, sometimes um sometimes we can't tell, sometimes the editor <laughs> is the yes. one that tells. <laughs> and sometimes you feel um, you know, I, I'm thinking about I don't know if you've read um uh, Tale of Despero. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, but that, that narrator's voice is not a framing device, but it is a device for sure. And I can tell you that it was in there because of my own personal panic and that, that voice showed up and it sounded like it knew, uh, how to tell the story and what was going on in the story. Mm-hmm. So I latched onto it and I'm just thinking about what would have happened if somebody had come along, if an editor had come along and said, right, okay, well, you've managed to tell the story. Let's get rid of this overbearing because it is overbearing, this overbearing voice. And I don't know that I could, I, I might have collapsed, you know, uh, it is such a, I don't know if you feel this way, but there they're just such um, a house of cards <laughs> to build. An, you know, it's like, don't breathe on it wrong. Don't look at it wrong. Um, it's astonishing that it ever holds together. And wait, you know, look, I've made it. It's all standing. Let's just tiptoe away.
1: Oh, my goodness. Yes. When you balance the final pair on top and it and you're just like <laughs> just leave it be yeah don't don't it's a miracle it's still standing right. don't do anything to it yeah. <laughs> yeah and don't ask anybody what they think the oh my goodness should yeah. do
2: to it right
1: yeah yes no the opinion's too close to it the breath is gonna, it's right. gonna shake it <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, so go back to the borrowers one thing that delighted me about when you chose this was that you are actually the second author on this series who has picked a book about tiny people um, so what's Eliz- the other tiny people one? Eliza Clark who writes adult, books for adults um, picked the, the gnome trilogy by Terry Pratchett, I'm not sure if you've come across them, no, I hadn't read them no. before Eliza picked them, they're f- very much for children uh, and they are well, going back to the borrowers I feel like I feel like he definitely has read *The Borrowers*, but they are—it's um—it's very Terry Pratchett. You know, it's very much tongue-in-cheek and silly and funny. But it's about tiny people. Uh, some of them live outside. Some of them live in a department store, and they have to leave. And there's different communities in different areas. And but one of the things Eliza was talking about was how much she loves the idea of uh, being a human eating uh being a tiny person eating human food and I messaged her when I had heard what you had chosen and I just to let her know and she made me promise uh, that I would ask you if you were a borrower what is the human food you would get the most pleasure out of eating do you think Eliza would like to sink her face into a side of salmon (laughs) (laughs) I myself and it's probably in a very American answer
2: I would go into a jar of peanut butter. Uh-huh. Um yeah, I just I love peanut butter so much. And you know and and it's funny because it's like I don't think about the food aspect of it as much. As oh, interesting. Every little thing that comes. I mean still. It's like uh, when I hold a postage stamp in my hand, I think, "Oh, well, that would look very nice framed or a paperclip. clip what could pod do with that you know and it's just like and that is so that speaks to something really childlike in me it, it's that wonder over e- each object becomes new because you see it as something else you know yeah.
1: and i do think the bit I, I i you get such a pure pleasure from reading those sections which describe the way they've set there House up and the little clever ways and even like Arietti's bed and all the small things, the way they use the blotting paper. It's just delicious. It is about. Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna
2: look for the Terry Pratchett books so though. I've never I've never uh heard of them and it it sounds
1: Right up my alley. They are wonderful. I really enjoyed them. They have, they're sometimes called the Gnome Trilogy, N-O-M-E, and sometimes the Bromeliad Trilogy. But the first one is called Truckers. There's three of them. The first one's called Truckers. And I really enjoyed reading them. All right. Okay. I'm on it. Yeah. (laughs) Sign me up. Obviously part of the, the joy of things like the borrowers. And it can, this kind of touches on the peripheral magic is also the way that they observe us as humans. And again, something that I feel like you kind of have played with in a few of your books in terms of animals, small people, puppets, observing people. And actually, this would be a good moment if I could just ask you to tell us a bit about The Puppets of Spellhorst before we get into, into this.
2: Yeah, so The Puppets of Spellhorst, um, a, a fairy tale novella, is how I think of it. Um, about five puppets, um, who, uh, are in a story together and, um, end up being purchased from a toy store by, a uh, Taciturn. Did I say that right? Taciturn, old sea captain. And, um, and that's just the beginning of, of their journey. And, uh, the utter delight that I had the kid me. And, you know, it's funny because I think that, um, this doesn't tap into peripheral magic, but it taps into that, the tininess. Um, and it's the same way, um, I remember feeling with, uh, Edward Tulane where that thing where you, you are, it, you're powerless, um, because, um, you just you don't have any agency. You cannot move. You cannot speak. And, uh, and, and, a, and for me, that taps into so much of the feeling of, of being a kid. It's just like you, you are often um, invisible, uh, powerless, you know, in the hands of the adults of the world. So to me, it is a very uh, familiar place and an easy mindset to get into.
1: Mhm mhm. It's that's so true isn't it? And as well because the borrowers is interesting in that context because they are childlike in their lack of agency and the fear and then you also have Arietti who is a literal child and has that even just within the constructs of her family. Her family, yep, yep. And and also, you know, it's like
2: uh this gets I get asked this question a lot you know, when Despero comes up and it's like, why do, why are there so many mice in children's <laughs> books? And it's just like, to me, it's always like a no brainer. It's because that's how you feel as a kid. Right. Yeah. It's like, you're like beside the point a lot of the mm-hmm. time, or mm-hmm. sometimes viewed as pesty. Right. And, <laughs> um, to be gotten rid of. And, um, but, uh, so it's the, the tininess, the, the um being overlooked uh, as a deeply feeling human being or puppet mm-hmm. or borrower you know yeah or a mouse
1: and with the puppets they again we will we'll spoil the borrowers we won't spoil your brand new book <laughs> but <laughs> they do have as you said quite the journey and they they encounter lots of different people and I hope this isn't too spoily, but at one point they are in a family situation where they encounter children who uh observe, encounter them very differently i'd love to yes. just hear a bit more about how you kind of what you wanted to do with those different humans they meet in the different the different ways we as children and as people perceive play and toys and stories
2: yeah well it's nice that you would uh, assume that i um <laughs> purposely knew what I was doing. <laughs> um, and it's like, oh, let's have them encounter kids. Let's have them encounter adults. Let's have them count encounter miserable adults, thwarted adults. But none of that was intentional. Uh it's like, you know, uh I started with knowing that there were these five puppets. And um and the magic word once. And beyond that, I knew nothing. <laughs> and so it's it's um everything that those puppets encounter, I encounter along with them and with the same level of surprise and I wouldn't say frustration, <laughs> but um often feeling thwarted, you know? Mm-hmm. Um and it was so much fun to do it, but I never outline, nor do I, um, think about themes and, you know, and when I get enough distance and when I start to, you know, when we're at the point where you and I are right now, where the book is not out in the world and I'm starting to talk to, uh, good smart readers about it, I will start to understand kind of what the themes are. And with every interview that I do, I will learn more about what the book is about if I if I have a good conversation with somebody. And then I will take those ideas forward as I discuss it. But they're never really there as I'm writing. Does that make sense? Oh,
1: absolutely. That is Almost honestly, I can't say how much of a relief it is to hear that <laughs> from someone who writes so wonderfully and beautifully and has written so many books because that is um that's a very it's very familiar to me. Good, <laughs> and I'm good not an and I outliner just... or a planner and also look back and I'm like, oh, that's what I was writing about. <laughs> right.
2: And 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 it is I, I'm not being disingenuous. I learn by conversing with people who have read it. And, like, who are passionate readers, I learn what the themes are and what I was about. But I don't know until I get to this point, And then I
1: slowly piece it together. And has that been always how you've written and understood your own work?
2: Yeah, or not understood it, as it were. <laughs> I mean, it's just like I tell the story, but it's like I when uh, my first book came out because of When dixie and um, I uh, here in the States, you can... Uh, almost make a living just um, doing school visits around, you know, your books. Um, And so somebody offered, it was my very first school visit. And I was so excited because I was going to get paid money to stand up in front of a group of kids and talk about this book that I'd written. And it was a fifth grade classroom. And I remember standing next to the teacher in front of the chalkboard. And she said to the kids, "Okay, here's Katie Camillo, she's written this book and she's here to talk to us about it. So um, let's begin by talking about the themes in the book. And I literally felt like a drop of sweat move down the side of my body because I thought, I have no idea what the themes are. And they're going to pay me for this. And now they're not going to pay me because I have no idea what the themes are. And then this beautiful group of kids started shouting out the themes Teacher wrote them down on the blackboard. uh, And I went out to the car afterwards and wrote them down in a notebook so that I could (laughs) next time say, okay, let's talk about the themes in this book. You know,
1: I love that. I have somewhere on my desk. Uh, uh, So my books are about book-wandering and kids travel inside of books. Um, and I went to do a school visit and they'd done a project around the books where they had done a guide to book-wandering. And one of the children had created this incredible guide to book-wandering. And I was like... <laughs> Uh, can I, can borrow I have this? I, have to buy I was like, can I have this? Can I photocopy this? And I still refer to it when I am trying to work out the magic because I am very much like a vibes first. And the amount of times I'm having to come up with like, create magical loopholes and fudges because I want to I, I want to do the thing that makes the best story. Right, and I'm always right. leaping through this guide and I'm like, I know that she'll have worked it out for me. And again, children are amazing and very useful.
2: <laughs> right. Absolutely. <laughs> I, I mean, and I, I, I love that. And I also, I have to say there, there's a part of me that would have, if I were you gone, oh no, because, um, this is back to, you know, looking at things out of the corner of your eye again. That's how I always feel when I'm working and even to a large extent after I'm done. Best not to look at this directly um, or, or the house of cards, or it will all fall down, right? And even when it is a thing that everybody says very well, this is a house of cards and it is standing, you know, it's still like, gosh, how much do I want to examine it for fear that
1: I won't be able to do it again? Or do you know what I mean? Oh, for sure. And then when something's published as well, I feel like sometimes the house of cards, this is a messy metaphor, but I feel like <laughs> my publisher's like glued the house of cards together. Right. And then you, you notice that one of the cards is actually the wrong way around. <laughs> or right. Bent. Right. But it's glued right. now. <laughs> and so,
2: right. It, and it is a thing and everybody looks at it and says, yes, that is a thing, you know? And so it's like, very well, it's a thing. Um, but that's kind of terrifying.
1: One of the, I recorded an episode in the last series with a writer called Guy Garnett and they picked where the wild things are and we ended up oh. having this really amazing conversation that I found very enriching about how, as a writer, you need to embrace Wildness and bewilderment as a writer, and that embracing bewilderment is part of it and actually i've been really again I'm consistently reassured how much it comes up when I speak to writers I really admire and love how much this is actually quite common and it's yeah wonderful to know. I, 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 I like
2: the, I like the word bewilderment, and I would add flat out
1: fear to it
2: <laughs> you know and because it's like uh <laughs> I've used this this very um it, it's like when when I'm in a novel um and and I've gotten to because I do multiple drafts I've gotten to uh, you know the fourth or fifth draft where things are holding together and I think oh okay it might work then I start to feel very much like a, a furry footed bumbling creature who has been entrusted with a goblet um, that is filled with something equally precious and I have to carry it and um, and I'm my feet are too large and they're too furry and it's like why did you give this to me I can't do it and um, but I know I have no choice but to try and carry it. And, um, why do you think I started on that metaphor? That's the fear, I guess, you know, it's just, that's
1: that's such a good metaphor. That really true. It's like, you're doing an obstacle course with this goblet and you keep just losing. And you you think,
2: why did they give it to me? You know, and by the same token, you know, like when people say, oh, you must, um, you must feel like, oh, you did a really good job or like you're, you know, you've, you it's like, no, the only thing that I a positive feeling I ever have is um, like, this would be a really good story if somebody better was, carrying <laughs> that, you know, but at least it's a good story. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and it's been entrusted to me. So I have to try to do the best that I can do with my big furry feet.
1: Yeah. I- I'm obsessed with that. I will be thinking of that furry-footed monster <laughs> every time now I'm writing.
2: Well, and it connects right to the wild things, right? You yeah. Know? Oh it's yes, obsessed, uh... <laughs>
1: literally a wild thing holding a goblet. That is the yeah. perfect metaphor for writing. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, it's interesting. Just talk about like uh, things like fear, and we talked about the spikiness of the book. I do think one thing that really struck me coming back to the book was how not just the intro, but the book is full of fear and anger and there's quite a lot of like the boy is really quite cruel to Arietti when he first meets her in trying like pleasure taking some pleasure in telling her that that they are gonna be extinct, not humans and you know, Pod and Homily really talk quite sharply to her. And a lot of the adults are awful, you know, lock the boy in the bedroom and take pleasure in the fact that they're going to like exterminate them. And there is, it is a spikier, much spikier book than I remembered f- that has more fear and anger in it. And I don't know how much that is also just a uh, of different times as well. I feel like there's a is I don't know if that's a gross generalization to let's say there's less spikiness in children's books now. I
2: don't know. Or there's a different kind of spikiness. Maybe, yes, maybe better. that's right. It's a different yeah.
1: flavor of spikiness.
2: Yeah. What year was this written? I don't 1952? have my glasses on. 1952. I want to say 1952. So you would have to think that yes, uh, World War Two was still very much mm. on Mary Norton's mind. That's a very good think. point. Yeah. Um, and also, you know, our perceptions of childhood keep on changing. Of course, yeah. Yeah. But it is, it's interesting. And and I would also like, I i, I would defend that spikiness. It's the same, uh, you know, it's, I, I, I will get called on the carpet sometimes for too much darkness in the stories that I tell. And um, I always think about how difficult the world is and how um absolutely ridiculous it is to think that kids don't you know how yeah, ridiculous, sure. how, yeah. how difficult it is and so i it's like i i feel like um the harder things um it's it's good to encounter them in a story so that it's a it's a safer confine to deal with for them sure. Yeah, and it also acknowledges that they exist. Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. So um, you mentioned that you go, you go back to the borrowers. Um, I'm interested in how much you feel like the borrowers, particularly, but the books you love growing up generally, how actively you feel like they are an influence on how you approach your own work and your own stories. Um,
2: I, as an inspiration I guess they're always there, Um, and, uh, you know, it has long been a dream of mine to be able to do something like uh, Paddington. You can't do something like The Borrowers because, you know, it would be The Borrowers, (laughs) Um, but... Uh, and, and nor can you do a, a, a bear who's been, you know, <laughs> left at Paddington Station. But um, so, I mean, they're an inspiration to me, um, but they also like to reread them. Um, not that I ever really forget, but it because that kid in me is always present, which I'm really grateful for. And I have found is not necessarily the case um, with everybody. Um, that eight-year-old is just right on the surface for me, but rereading some of these books brings that eight-year-old back full force. And then it, that eight-year-old is very much a part of the stories that I tell. Right. Um, so it, it feeds the stories in ways that I am unaware of other than bringing that, that sensibility and, and what that eight-year-old needed. does that make sense?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I used to be much more resistant than I am now to the idea of writing for your past child. I don't know why I was resistant to it when it first started. I, I think I was resistant to... I was much more resistant to uh, putting anything... I sort of owning up almost to anything of myself. Like I was very resistant to the idea that my huh. main character was me in any way. And now I'm much more at peace with that and would happily say, actually, that I... I'm writing not just for past me, but that that is someone very present when I'm thinking about it. Um, but yeah, I used to be, I, I really don't know why. I don't know, being a debut it's is a weird time. I feel like I was overthinking everything. <laughs> <laughs> but but
2: it's, um. at the same time, I'm just thinking about, you know, when I sit down to write, um, I I mean, that eight-year-old is somewhere, but more than that, And I wonder if this is the way it is for you, since you, like me, don't work with an outline, Um, It is getting all of me, eight-year-old, 59-year-old, every bit of me out of the way so that this thing that is smarter than I am um, and wiser than I am and knows what it wants to become if I will just shut up all the parts of me. Um I I it's always like clearing a
1: path for the story itself, you know? Yeah, it's so interesting, isn't it, how much a book is in is is you and also is literally you in terms of you we have to write it, but it is somehow a part and I felt like for, and I feel almost like it stresses me out saying it out loud. So I know, I know, I know. I get it. I get it.
2: I get it. Um, and but it, it and it also sounds kind of like you know airy fairy to Oof. say it, but it's um, a- at the same time it seems wrong to me not to acknowledge it because the story itself seems to have its own existence. And to deny that and to say that it is just me
1: um, seems wrong. I'm going to try and own own that more now. Post right. Yeah, I don't know. But it,
2: you're right. There's quite a few different pieces of furniture I had to climb over to say those sentences. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> It's a trip
1: being a writer, isn't it?
2: <laughs> and the whole time, as you're like trying to climb over the furniture, you're going, "Don't knock over the house of cards." Yeah, that yeah. the
1: wild thing is they're holding. Yeah, yeah, yeah the goblet right, and the yeah, house of cards, right, and, right, right. <laughs> everything is about to break. <laughs> right. Um. And. I guess you mentioned Paddington as well. I'd love to just hear about some of the other, um, even though this is officially we're talking about The boroughs. I would love to just hear about some of the other books that meant a lot to you when you were younger, as maybe even a child teenager.
2: Um, It's funny because, as we said earlier, like I was one of those kids who read everything. And so anytime I talk about it, there are things that I... Uh, forget and of course, ones yeah. that I end up talking about again. Uh, do Do you know the Twenty One Balloons by William Penn Dubois? No, I don't. Oh, uh, I I loved that. Okay. I It was one of those that I came back to again and again. I loved Harriet the Spy. Oh, Did you read yeah. Harriet? No, the I Spy? haven't read it, but I'm i I'm very which is basically a primer on how to become a writer. You know, um right. and, and all the dangers that are implicit in becoming a writer. Um, and uh, I don't think
1: that one ever was quite as, uh, mainstream or popular here as here. I I actually mainly know about it because my best friend is American and it's one of her favorite books.
2: Yeah. I mean, if it's just, and it's funny that a lot of times I don't, I don't even think of mentioning it when I'm I'm talking about the books that I read, but it was just it was certainly central. I loved Secret Garden. Mm. Um I even more I loved Little Princess. Mm-hmm. Um that's the one that I came back to again and again. And uh I've come back to both of those as adults and they really are just absolutely delicious, I have to say. Mm-hmm. You know.
1: Um I just reread... Up. Elizabeth, princess because gabrielle zevin chose it for her episode really yeah and
2: and what did you what did you think when you reread it
1: do you know what i very sincerely loved it it obviously has some tangly bits that are just of its time and i don't even mean that as an insult it's just it, it, it all books are of their time products of the time that they, they were yeah. written in for good for bad just they that's just yes yeah um, but the there is a a magic and a wit to it that is just delightful, and the Secret Garden as well. I think it's, the Secret Garden is a more tangly one in terms of things to puzzle through with colonialism and right, race. absolutely, um, yeah. But that's a real peripheral magic book, isn't it? As well, yeah. Kind of, that garden I feel like is really firmly lodged in my storytelling. Yeah, that, that
2: is definitely peripheral magic, although peripheral magic shows up when Sarah is uh, in, in A Little Princess when she comes back to her, her garret, which, and it has been transformed, and there's the hamper of food. I mean, it's got to be one of the better moments in children's literature. It's, it's right up there with, you know, pushing against the wardrobe and having it give way. Into uh, uh a, a, those are books speaking of Narnia that I have that mattered so much to me and I have not gone back to them as an adult for fear the magic will not be there the way I remembered it
1: I would say as someone who reread them over the pandemic that you should trust that instinct <laughs> really yeah <laughs> yeah wow wow duly
2: noted okay I, did, I just
1: I did get a lot of pleasure from them, but there was something lost. I would say,
2: could there be a better moment though when when Lucy oh. pushes on? Uh, it's it's just, just the
1: it's the moment, isn't it? It kind of sums up so much of the magic of children's books and fantasy right. books. Right?
2: It's like it might as well be an uh, an answer for you know, like why do you write children's books? Because <laughs> yeah. you push on the wall mm-hmm. of a wardrobe and it gives way mm-hmm. to Narnia. Yeah. it is
1: that that it's that gateway into stories and honestly a lot of what i am trying cuz cuz in the books in my books they go into real stories so they're out, well, out of copyright things so not narnia but they go to the secret garden and they go to alice and all of those places and i think so much of what i wanted to try and have was that feel of like that hand reaching out and saying kind of yes Come and be part of this story that you love And I'm I'm really, I really am into immersive theater, which again, I think is that same beat of it's that hand and it's, you know, often in immersive theater, there's a literal doorway that you're pushing through and you become part of a different world. It's just, it's just, it's literal and figurative magic, isn't it?
2: Yeah. (laughs) And it's deeply, deeply satisfying. Mm.
1: Yeah. And that really speaks to why I kind of wanted to, this podcast grew out of, I don't know how... This sort of equates to the culture of children's books in America, but in the UK, it's been getting worse and worse in terms of there's very few slots for children's books. Aren't really reviewed very much here. There's most of the newspapers will maybe have one children's book review a week, if that, um, and they they're they're really t- treated as quite separately a lot of the time. And there's been a real kind of movement of no, we need to make children's books part of the cultural conversation. A just they. We, you know, it's a huge proportion of books sold are children's books, but also they make us who we are as readers was, and writers. That's what I was going to say. That's that's where that's where we become readers and writers. Yeah. And it's been such a joy talking to writers about because I want. Yeah, it's like how do you make you know? I don't want to just be. To, we, I love talking to other children's books people, but I was like, I want to have these conversations as adults talking about how these books made us who we are as readers and writers and it it's has a been a great thing such to do a yeah. joy hearing people talk about the books that made them it's just and there's a passion that you know I I
2: used to work at a used bookstore and this is before the internet was like you could find anything you wanted within a nanosecond and sometimes uh somebody would come in and say and describe to me in great detail a book that they remembered from when they were a kid and every once in a while i would be able to put it all together and put that book in their hands and it was the most visceral reaction from people it was as if you had pushed them off their feet they people burst into tears um they they looked like they were going to faint and it's just like it it's that's uh when i think about that i think And you're right. We don't talk about, we don't talk about that, do we? You know, it's, it's always kind of like sidelined. It's like, oh yeah, that's, you know, that's what I read when I was a kid, but it absolutely, it shapes the human beings, the readers, the writers, the human beings that we
1: become. Amazing. I think that's actually a really lovely point to, to pause um because really what more right no no that? that's it what a what a delight it's been to talk to you and can we just point
2: out that Ramona oh, has thank slept you. through the whole thing that's great
1: yeah oh, a delight <laughs> a delight <laughs> thank you so much for your time it has been an utter joy to chat stories and the borrowers with you thank you uh, I so so enjoyed it thank you and um I
2: I I hope that I get to talk to you again.
0: Thank you so much for listening to Book Wondering. A reminder that you can buy the puppets of Spellhorst and the borrowers with free shipping via bookshop.org using the code wanderer and support indie bookshops. If you enjoyed this episode, then spreading the word would be greatly appreciated by sharing it online, telling your friends, or leaving a review. You can find Anna at A Case for Books on social media, or you can email her at author at gmail.com. The podcast is produced by me, Adam Collier, with artwork by the wonderful Hester Kitchen. And this is our last episode before we take a few weeks off, but we'll be back later in the year. But until then, happy book-wandering.